How about we kick off our time together today, if you don't mind, in uh, a little bit of history. I believe before we deal with the present, we have to first understand the past. I've told you about that. We've been reading, or we are reading, Western Civilization, Western Civilization, a brief historical look. We uh, did chapter one last time. We talked about the uh, the first civilization, the the uh, ancient, uh, what did this talk about here? Let me click this over here. Uh, the ancient Near East, the first civilization. Yeah, that's right. And now we're kicking off with the Hebrews, a new view of God and individual. We're talking about early Hebrew history, God, one, sovereign, uh, good, the individual and morale, or moral autonomy, the covenant of the law, the history, the Hebrew idea of history, the prophets, and finally the legacy of the ancient Jews. That's what we're going to try to kick off here uh, in just a few seconds. So uh, I would tell you to go ahead and open it up. I don't know if uh, you can find this anywhere where we're reading from, but uh, we got some um, some biblical chapters and biblical texts we want to focus on. If you want to write these down while I'm thinking about it, uh, just jot these down in your notes. Uh, let me see here. Uh, we want to focus on Leviticus 19, 11, 13, 15, 33, and 34. So write those down as something we're going to come back to. Uh, also, Isaiah uh, chapter 1, 16, and 17 is something that we're going to focus our attention on. And there's some other stuff here that I was I thought about that we definitely want to talk about. Oh, yeah. Deuteronomy 30, 15. Exodus 24 and 5. And what is this? Exodus 19 and 6. And I think those are all the texts that we want to uh, focus on. So we're going to definitely uh, do that a little bit later. Not today. We're going to come back to that. So uh, this is kind of a two-part conversation we're going to have in here. But uh, we're going to get settled in. Get your time to get all those things down I just said you might have to repeat repeat it uh, so that you go replay yeah hit the replay back back yeah go back uh -huh. and and let's get uh, let's get to it to it when you ready uh-huh yeah ah I don't know why I said it like that but ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt that's right the birthplace of the first civilizations are not the spiritual ancestors of the West for the origins or the origins of Western traditions. We must turn to the Hebrews, Jews and the Greeks, both Greeks and Hebrews, of course, absorb elements of the civilization of Mesopotamia and Egypt. But what is more significant is how they transformed this inheritance and shaped worldviews that differed markedly from the outlooks of these first civilizations. So in this, we are basically introduced. This is the part of the Bible, or this is a part of our history journey that uh, is categorized in the Moses text. 
uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, the Pentateuchs of the Bible. We hear about Hebrews or the early, the early history of Hebrews. Some Hebrews journeyed from Cana to Egypt to be herdsmen and farmers, but they eventually became forced laborers for the Egyptians, fearful of turning into permanent slaves of the Pharaoh, the Hebrews yearn for an opportunity to escape. We learn about that in Exodus chapter two, how they get to, to that reality and where Moses came from, who was accepted as a messenger to deliver the people. Uh, then we understand about the Philistines, uh, threatened by the Philistines, originally from the island of the Aegean Sea and the coast of Asia Minor, the 12 Hebrew tribes united under the leadership of Saul. That's where we get the first king that the people chose. A charismatic hero who they acclaimed as, of course, their first king. But under Saul's successor, David, a gifted warrior and poet, the Hebrews or Israelites broke the back of the Philistine power and subdued neighboring peoples. Then we learn about Solomon. Now Saul was the first king uh, that the people chose. David was the first king that God chose and Solomon was to succeed David. And if Saul was kind of to lead them into this, this aristocracy, if you please, uh, David was to basically deliver them from uh, or to uh, help them to solidify their their kingdom, if you will. And then Saul or Solomon came along as basically the the uh, the, the 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 dealer of peace. He he was kind of how everything got set up. Saul led them in. David, you know, fought the battles and got them their freedom. And then Saul or Solomon came in and got everything all set up. But after Solomon, it seemed that this, this moment of peace and power only lasted for these three reigns. Cause after Solomon, we end up with this problem. Uh, Judah was divided. Uh, they had an issue with, uh, tax, you know, cause every society deals in watch this. I'm going to read this to you. David's son Solomon built a royal palace in Jerusalem and beside it a magnificent temple honoring God. Under Solomon, ancient Israel was at the height of its political power and prosperity. But opposition to Solomon's tax policies and his favorite treatment of the region of Judah in the south led to the division of the kingdom after his death. So again, taxes, taxes, taxes. That's the great thing about going all the way back to the beginning, because you realize, and Solomon is one of the innovators of this in his text, when he wrote in Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, which basically means nothing is new under the sun. But going back, you see that America, as I like to argue now, was basically the kid who showed up to dinner late. Everybody already eaten and he was just picking up the scraps and, and 
but became for some reason the most powerful and the most recognized and the center of attention. But <laughs> literally he was the last one to the party and he was a kid. That's America. So we got this problem where the, the kingdom divided. This led into the Babylonians taking over. That's where they had exile and became, uh, fell under captivity to the Babylonians. But because of their faith, which is a centerpiece of the Hebrew conversation, their faith is the key. It's like prayer is, what is it? Prayer is the door and faith. No, prayer is the key and faith unlocks the doors. What they used to say down at the church. Some of them still say it. Uh, monotheism, the belief in God, one God became central force in the life of the Hebrews and marked a profound break with near Eastern religious thought. So they're, they're all focusing that there's one Lord. That's where you get near churches. There's one Lord, there's one faith and there's one baptism. It comes from this, uh, understanding of, of the Hebrews. Uh, the Hebrews regarded God as fully sovereign. He ruled all and was subject to nothing. Yahweh's ex existence and power did not derive from a pre-existing realm, as was the case with other gods or the other gods of other people. So they, they, they kind of go back to our first civilizational people who where in the first civilization, they knew it was something out there, but they just didn't know what it was, right? They just knew there were spirits out there. There were, there was something that was, that had a little bit more oomph, if you please, over all of us, but they couldn't, they couldn't put the finger on it. But the Hebrews came over and they basically put the finger on it and said, it's God. It's I am that I am, as we will learn about in, in Exodus. Uh, they also believe all natural phenomena, rivers, mountains, storms, stars were divested of any supernatural quality. The stars and planets were creations of Yahweh, not divinities uh, or the abodes of divinities. It's like all this is God stuff. Everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You got that in David, the world and they that dwell therein, right? All this stuff is coming from the Bible and where we get our biblical texts. Let's get into the individual and moral autonomy. All right. Some fun things. Fundamental to Hebrew belief was the insistence that God did not create people to be his slaves. Um, it gives us where we're going to read our text uh, later on uh, from Deuteronomy and Exodus is our first thing. But you go back to Genesis chapter one, where he basically said, let us make a man in our own image. They can have what we have and do what we do. So he was trying to make basically his children. That's what he wanted. He wanted kids, somebody to share his life with, to share his world with his ideas. It says by making God the center of life, Hebrews could become free moral agents. 
no person, no human institution, and no human tradition could claim their souls. Uh, the first concern, however, of the Hebrews was righteousness, not power, fame, or riches, which were only idols and would impoverish a person spiritually and morally. Now, here's the thing. I had this problem with my mama. We had this conversation with my mama and I did. And uh, we were talking about freedom of choice. And, you know, she likes to or she was trying to preach from the, the or take the position, should I say, that everything belongs to God. God's in control and all that good stuff, which is which is I believe is true. But I also think that we have to focus on the freedom of choice, which the Hebrews cited as the dilemma it says uh, the dilemma is that. In possessing freedom of choice, human beings are also free to disobey God, to commit a sin which leads to suffering and death. Now, before we get to that, let's talk about this up top. There was, however, a condition to freedom for the Hebrew, for the Hebrews. People were not free to create their own moral precepts or their own standards of right and wrong. Freedom meant voluntarily obedience to commands that originated with God. So it's basically saying, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is what is right and wrong. And you have the power to say, I, I can, I can work with that or I ain't about that life and know that just like in anything else, there is an action or every action has a reaction and are you okay with the reaction when we come to it? Uh, this brings us to the covenant and the law, uh, which we taught. It says justice was the central theme of the Old Testament ethics. Uh, the Israelites uh, liberated from slavery by a righteous and compassionate God had a moral responsibility to overcome injustice, to care for the poor, the weak, and the oppressed. It's basically telling you the American story right here. Remember, I told you, America was the kid that was late to dinner and somehow became the center of attention. It's fascinating. The Hebrews came to see themselves as a unique nation a chosen people for God had given them a special honor, a profound opportunity. And as they could never forget an awesome responsibility, the Hebrews did not claim that God had selected them because they were better than other people or because they had done anything special to deserve God's election. They believe that God has selected them to receive the law so that their nation would set an example of righteous behavior and ultimately make God and the law known to other nations. So it's like, look, we were selected to basically be the poster child here. We were supposed to do this right. And everybody else can look on us and say, huh, what are they doing over there? Well, we're doing A, B, C, D, E because it's supposed to be due like this and everything. And they're like, oh, all right, cool. So let's talk about the history of 
the Hebrew idea of history. Uh, the Hebrews saw history as the work of God. It was a divine drama filled with sacred meanings and moral significance. Historical events reveal the clash of humans with God's commands. For the Hebrews, history also revealed God's compassion and concern. Thus, the Lord liberated Moses and the Israelites at the Red Sea and appointed prophets to plead for the poor and the oppressed. So you, you find in when they came out of the Red Sea, uh, the Israelites uh, by Moses were instructed to build these pillars, if you please, put these pillars in the sea. And what they would do is they would serve as a human reminder or a physical reminder of what God had done in this place, right? And, and that's what they're, they're talking about their history. Their history is basically remembering through these, these moments of evidence, this unfailing truth uh, or unfailing proof, proof, truth, same thing, that what God had done for them. Uh, that brings us finally to the prophets. Now, there's some things that we want to talk about uh, when we, we get into the Bible. I would like to open that up, the Bible, on, on this subject, kind of let this slide a little bit and go to the Bible. Maybe tomorrow we'll do that. Um, but it focuses on some of the major prophets, Hosea, uh, Isaiah, and Jeremiah are three that we can look at when we, we get into the Bible. Um, the prophets cared nothing for money or possession, feared no one, kind of like Elon Musk, huh? And preached without invitation. Uh, to the prophets, these social evils were religious sins that would bring ruin to Israel. In the name of God, they denounced the greed and pomp of the heartless rich and the hypocrisy of pious Jews who worship in the prescribed manner, but neglected their social obligations to their neighbor. Justice is what they Demanded. Most folks don't really think about the fact because we've been kind of conditioned to look at the churches as these self-righteous jackasses. But the truth of the matter is these people were, were the Martin Luther Kings of the world. That's why you hear people talk about folks like Martin Luther King and, and uh, 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 all those boys and girls like uh, I was trying to think about, like even Dr. Cornell West and all those people will argue uh, um, Reverend Jesse Jackson and Reverend Al Shock will argue about operating in the prophetic tradition. And, and the prophetic tradition was basically these people who stood out against injustice. That was their focus, right? Uh, prophets stressed the direct spiritual ethical encounter between the individual and God, the inner person concerned more concerned them more than the outer forms of religious activity. Point blank. They cared more about people, more about the advancement of same than they did about, you know, advancing uh, church causes or uh, religious ideologies or social 
uh, entities or whatever the case may be. It was how do we do our part to build the people? That, that, that's all that wraps up in what the prophet, AKA the pastor was designed to do. Uh, finally, we bring ourselves to the legacy of the ancient Jews. Throughout the centuries, the Jewish Bible, with its view of God, human nature, divine punishment, and social justice has played a pivotal and profound role in Jewish life. Again, look at what we have here. We have this conversation or this highlight, if you will, on social justice, which fascinates me because when I think about the Christian church, you know the thing that they mostly try to shy away from? Social, social issues. They want to deal with it, which I don't understand it because literally as Judeo-Christians, that is the, the, basically your mission statement, the mission statement of the church. But for some reason that is, that is, that is severely over, overlooked. And seeking to comprehend their relationship to God, the writers of the Hebrew scriptures produced a treasury of themes, stories, and models of literacy style and craftsmanship that have been a source of inspiration for Western religious thinkers, novelists, poets, and artists to the present day. Historians and archaeologists find the Hebrew scriptures a valuable source and their efforts to reconstruct Near Eastern history. And that is basically chapter two of this book, which focused on the Hebrews, a new view of God and the individual. So tomorrow, if you'll allow me, what I want to do is I want to go back. I want to, I want to focus on a few things. I want to read these, these texts to you that we, we highlighted those biblical texts. And I want to focus on those three prophets that they highlighted. I want to go and kind of read through and hopefully we can, I believe, find out what they found to be so fascinating about these, these different prophets, these three prophets uh, that they mentioned here, uh, Jose, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Uh, why, why, why would they? Why were they so important? That our friends who uh, put this piece together, who uh, gave us this depiction of the heat. Why? Why did you feel that you need to focus on them? Also, what we're going to do while we're in the Bible is we're going to focus on uh, the law. Let's go over here. It talks about the, uh, where we get over here, where is it? Uh, the covenant and the law. We want to go talk about, it says justice was the central theme of the Old Testament uh, ethics. And it reverts us, reverts us to Exodus. So we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments and try to see if we can interpret what the Ten Commandments meant. I think that for many of us, we looked at things like the Ten Commandments as, as this, you know, biblical, just mumbo jumbo that gave us a reason to hate religion more. Uh, 
But what if it's more to it that we've been missing? Hmm? So we're going to get into all, all, all those things we're going to get into. How about we do that? We take some time and, and do that tomorrow. If, if that's all right with you, I definitely would appreciate it. All right. <sighs> Man, that was fun. I, 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 I just love Western Civilization. Like I told you, when I went to college, they told me, hey, you want to go study American history? I'm like, that? <laughs> hell no. How about, how about black history? I'm like, dude, I'm a Negro. I don't need to study that. I'm good. How about Western culture? Yeah, that sounds about fun. I don't know nothing about that. And here we are, having a conversation about it. All right? All right, I'm excited about what we learned today. I'm also excited about what we're going to study tomorrow. Don't forget to tell a friend, right? Be a friend by telling a friend. And uh, we're going to get on with it. Ah, Bible. That's going to be fun. All right, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I, I can sit here and just get excited all day with you, but you got better things to do with your time, and I understand. I thank you. All right, cool. So I shared yesterday my frustration. My frustration with why many people have decided well, I don't know if I want to say many people because I feel that I don't know many people. But the folks in my world have decided that uh, books like the Elon Musk autobiography is not worth their time. And I think it's a grave disservice to the culture because A, here is a person who is literally at the forefront of how our culture works. Most folks think it's the president. It's not the president. We live in a, in a capitalistic society, in a society that is supposedly the innovator and the supporter of free markets. And so being that this is how our culture works, uh, we rely more on our businesses as I'm going to shut our doors so we have some time with us. Hold on, just, just let it just... Okay, now we're alone. I'm sorry, there was a little chance that somebody could hear us. We want to be all to ourselves. So, not paying attention to Elon Musk is a bit alarming. Again, I'm not telling you to like the guy. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to, you, we don't have to call him a guy. We can call him a sick, sadistic bastard. That's actually what he calls himself. And so putting our personal feelings aside for this guy, we really look at who, or this is my mission statement. Who is he and why is he? Why is Elon Musk this guy that, in many cases, is the center of the conversation into the progressive future. You know, the fact of him doing rockets, the fact that he is one of the first to innovate the electric car idea. He may not have been the first to have it, but he was the first to, to put it on the market. We didn't hear about electric cars before Elon did it with Tesla, you know. Uh, solar panels and, and solar being a center of how we uh, deal in electricity. 
these again are not conversations that Elon created. As a matter of fact, most folks forget and even more don't know that uh, Jimmy Carter, the president 39, was the uh, one of the innovators of solar because he was a uh, engineer, a, a, a uh, what was he, a physicist? Uh, no, he was just a, a, what was he, I don't know. He was into climate change. That's what we know. And we're not talking about him. So pardon me for not knowing everything I need to know to answer that question. Uh, but he put solar panels on the White House, which Ronald Reagan came through because he was bought and paid for by the oil and gas industry. And so he ripped the solar panels off the White House and turned the White House back into a solar system, which is fascinating to me. Because when you think about it, here's a guy who had literally redefined the White House from an energy perspective. And most folks don't think about how much money did it cost for Ronald Reagan to reconvert the White House back into an oil and gas system. You want to talk about increasing the budget. You want to talk about uh, uh, raising or, or uh, strengthening or heavying, whatever you want to put there, the debt limit. That had to be some serious debt. Uh, levied against the federal government when he reconverted the White House, not only taking it back to a system that was of old, but what happened when the system had to go from being this light solar system, this free energy system to this gas powered system that that that's a serious question that that most folks don't think about when they're talking about Mr. Uh, Mr. Ronald Reagan. But I digress. Uh, Elon is having these serious conversations about this in his time as my dog is getting comfortable in her chair so that she can listen attentively to what we're going to talk about. So let's get into the nitty gritty of this this chat, if you please, on Elon Musk. Let's let's sit down. We're going to go through uh, the first 15 chapters of this book by Walter Isaacson. And uh, we just want to hit on some highlights. I don't want to spoil it for you. Uh, you can definitely go and, and collect it from your local bookstore if you choose. I would prefer to get it from that uh, uh, lovely Barnes and Nobles because, you know, they'll give you that that 20 percent off if you go buy it from them. Also, if you got that membership down there, that Barnes and Nobles, you might get another 20% off or 10%. I don't remember what the details are. This book cost me $28 is what I'm trying to tell you. And so uh, I'm pretty fascinated by that. Now, we talked about the uh, the prologue yesterday. And um, that was kind of the introduction to it. So we're going to deal it. These are the chapters, if you have the book, that we're going to focus our attention on. We're going to do The Adventures in Chapter 1, A Mind of His Own, Chapter 2, Life with Father, Chapter 3, The Seeker, Chapter 4, Escape Velocity, Leaving South Africa, Chapter 5, Canada, Chapter 6, Queens, Kingston, Ontario, Chapter 7, uh, Penn, Chapter 8, Go West, Chapter 9, um, Zip 2, Chapter 10, Justine, Chapter 11, X.com, Chapter 12, The Coup, Chapter 13, Mars, Chapter 14, and Rocket Man, Chapter 15. So that's kind of how we're going to set ourselves up here in this little here conversation. 
uh, if we want to, uh, if you have the book, then, you know, great, wonderful, marvelous. But, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say many of you may not have it. You don't have to go down to your Barnes and Nobles to get it. You can definitely get it on your smart device. I have three copies. I have one on my smart device. I have the physical book and I also have the audio book. Those are three things. Let me tell you something. You can't live in this world without an audio book. Oh, that is so wonderful to help you read. I got through my first book because I read the audio book. The Dung Beetles of Liberia was so beautiful because I had the audio book. Oh, helps you to just like watching a movie in your mind. But I digress. You may need to get some time to download all this stuff here. Or maybe you are in one of those little communities where you can get to a library or a, uh, a bookstore or something and collect it. So you know what I would like to do? I would like to, you know, help us all if we can. I know this may not work, but if we can, for some people who want to, I want you to feel like I'm trying to help us get on the same page, like I'm waiting for you. So, Mr. DJ, Ma'am DJ, non-binary DJ, if you can go ahead and put something right up in here. And what you do, if you got to go download, do that. Uh, if you're going out to buy it, do that. Get you some highlighters, too. Get you some little sticky notepads and all those good things so you can take notes. And uh, let's get let's get to it, to it together. Can we do that? All right. Mr. DJ is going to put a track here. It's going to feel like about 20, 20 minutes. It's going to feel like that. That's what I'm feeling like, because it is going to be about that. But it's really going to be like two to three minutes. So just add 10 on every minute that the track is. And that'll give you time to to get yourself together. And, and you'll feel at the end like we we were waiting on you. Right. No. Oh, well, he's just going to play it anyway. Let's get this track started. and We're going to get to it to it. One through 15 is what we're going to highlight on today. And Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson. Yes. Ah.
All right, we're feeling better. Got your book. Maybe took a bathroom break. Got you something to drink. Maybe some snacks. Uh, got all your writing utensils and your sticky notes. I think we're ready to get this party a tour to it. Thank you on behalf of No Copyright Sound. You know, No Copyright Sound is out here in these streets. I got to tell you this. Empowering creators they are. No copyright sound is through royalty free and no copyright sounds. We thank them for doing that right there. So let's get on into this. We're going to, as I say, get into chapter one here. And the thing that fascinated me kicking off of the gate is why I believe that we should focus our attention on people like Elon Musk. For example, right here in the first half, it says he also enlisted in a movement called technocrats or technocracy, technocracy. That's that's you see, that's why you get that audio book. So you can make sure you're reading that thing properly, which believe that the government should be run by technocrats rather than politicians. So here is a guy who is literally in of the belief system that he, his people, the Silicon Valley folks, should be taking over and controlling how we're operating as a society. And most of us are paying attention to what Biden is saying or what Trump is saying or what uh, Obama or anybody else is saying and not realizing that these are the people, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Elon Musks, the Bill Gates, the late Steve Jobs of the people who should be running uh, the situation. Uh, we learn about uh, his time in uh, growing up. We learn about his family. Uh, Harold Musk and May Halderman uh, was, is his parents uh, who uh, got together when they probably shouldn't. As a matter of fact, it is said that they shouldn't. It says here, uh, error... Harold Musk and May Halderman began dating when they were young teenagers. From the start, their relationship was filled with drama. He reported he reportedly proposed to her, but she didn't trust him. And yet she kept for some reason she decided to marry him. I think they said something about she got pregnant and realized that this was the ball game. And so they they needed to take care of business. Uh, turn this light on here so we can oh that is much better oh yes Woo, we can see god bless our hearts that brings us into chapter two and here's where the big stuff starts to pop off uh, it says elon cried a lot ate a lot and slept little as the dog is is getting herself together how are you do you do you need to get yourself settled in? Is there there a struggle over here? Let let's get the baby settled in. Come on now, just what you got to do is you got to go and put the blanket over her, and she'll lay down and and enjoy her life. There she goes. I, I don't know why I'm explaining this. I guess you can imagine what's going on because you definitely can't see it. Uh but back to Elon. Elon cried a lot, ate a lot, and slept little. At one point, May decided to just let him cry until he fell asleep. But she changed her mind after neighbors called the police. Don't you love the Karens of the world? 
always sticking their nose in something, but I digress. Uh, she says that, you know, he had these grumpy moods. He was, he was, I would dare say borderline, uh, bipolar where in some instances he was very, very sweet In other instances, he was very, very evil. And, uh, he had to, she had to juggle between the two with, with these things. It said, uh, Elon had no friends. And by the time he was in second grade, he was turn or tuning out. Uh, the teacher would come up to me and yell at me, but I would not really see or hear her. His parents got called into the principal to see the principal uh, who told them we have reason to believe Elon is retarded. Now, this spoke to me. Because it is a constant reminder of how, not that Elon is retarded, but how the system in itself is retarded. The educational system, dare I say. I, so, if I can just put this here, because the educational system was born really during the war, during the time of the war economy, right? Right. FDR was president. We were in World War II. We were trying to, it was all hands on deck, right? So you had to uh, push out all these thousands upon thousands of planes and, and, and different uh, war responsibilities or different war effort needs. So you had these factories that were running basically around the clock. And what happened was because these war, this war economy was so vast, uh, mama who was once at home taking care of the daily needs and the education, and the upbringing of the children, she now had to go to work, you know, in, in, in the plants with Papa. So that left the kids unattended. And here comes the education system, which at that time was designed to basically be a uh, preparation, if you please, for a war efforting economy because you had 15, 16, 17 year olds, which you had to train them because they were heading into the factories uh, here in, in the next two to three years. And if you talk about 1941, 1942, we got about a five year period, six year period. Then we're heading into Vietnam. We're still in this war boom. So you're talking about a good 10 years of this war economy. I don't know why you got to keep interrupting yourself in my conversations, dude. Siri, you need to shut the fuck up. Okay. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to say it like that, but yes, I did, but I didn't want you to hear it. Um, so you in this war boom and you got, you're trying to get the, your high school students prepared to be in the system. Either they're going to go off into the manual labor, the blue collar community, or they're going to get ready to go into college to be in the white collar community where they're going to be the doctors and the lawyers and the politicians and so forth and so on. There's nothing to do with these little kids, but just babysit them. And then after the war effort is over, there's really nothing to do with them either. And now you're talking about a, a dude who that's the American machine. Here's a kid that's in the South African machine. Totally different from the American machine. And he says, ever since I was a kid, if I started to think about something hard, 
then all my sensory systems turned off. I can't see or hear anything. I'm using my brain to compute, not for incoming information. The other kids would jump up and down and wave their arms in his face to see if they could summon back his attention, but it didn't work. It's best not to try to break through when he has that vacant stare, his mother says. So you don't have a kid to me that seems to be retarded. You have a kid to me that seems to be able to severely focus on whatever he's doing. If, if he's got something in his brain, he's locked in. He ain't coming out. How is that retarded? Again, you're talking about a system that doesn't know how to respond other than training people for war. Another thing we learn in, the, in this, this text is uh, he became a fierce. His, his determination became fierce. It says uh, they had an issue when he was going to a party and he was late to a party. Uh, it says fearing he would be punished uh, he climbed a maple tree and refused to come down. Kimball remembers standing beneath the tree and staring at his older brother in awe. He had this fierce determination that blows your mind and was sometimes frightening and still is. It's, it's this thing where he's like, look, if I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. And there's nothing you're going to do to make me change my mind about that. And that brings us to chapter three, which it gets very interesting because now uh, at the end of chapter two, we talk about his parents getting a divorce. I spare you those details because, you know, it's just the, the regular realities that most of us who have lived through a parent parental divorce understands. But he comes to uh, live with his father and it says at age 10, much Musk made a faithful decision one that he would later regret. He decided to move in with his father. He took the dangerous overnight train from Durham to Johannesburg on his own. Uh, when asked why he did it, he said, my father was lonely, so lonely. I felt I should keep him company. He used psychological wiles on me. He also adored his grandmother, Errol's mother, Cora, known as Nana. She convinced him that it was unfair that his mother had all three children and his father had none uh, going down here. So Elon, still a small boy, chose to live with him. It turned out to be a really bad idea. I didn't yet know how horrible he was. Four years later, Kimball followed. I didn't want to leave my brother alone with him. Kimball says, my dad guilted my brother into going to live with him and then guilted me. It's you find in this book. You, you don't really hear. Let me tell you what you don't find first. You don't find anything dealing in physical abuse. Nobody was hit. Nobody was slapped. Uh. There were no tussling's from a physical perspective, but you find a significant amount of mental and psychological abuse. As a matter of fact, the thing that is 
most fascinating about this text is you have this guy who, uh, as it says in the beginning with his mother, when they got together, which is very interesting that I think we should focus our attention on going back to chapter one, it says Errol Musk and May Halderman began dating when they were young teenagers from the start. Their relationship was filled with drama. That's something that I think you should hold on to mark that, uh, put a note beside it, say, I need to come back to that because what you're going to see is why that is a problem down the road. So, uh, a lot of the issues that we, uh, uh, deal with here, uh, now in this chapter is him dealing with the realities of his father, but he gained some things that could be good or could be bad. Like for example, Elon developed a reputation for being the most fearless. When the cousins went to a movie and people were making noises, he would be the one to go over and tell them to be quiet. Even if they were much bigger, it's a big theme for him to never have his decisions guided by fear. That was definitely present even when he was a child. So you have this guy who, uh, let me tell you why this speaks to me. Because it reminded me, I thought about this literally, I swear. When I, no, I, I really swear. Um, like, I'm going to lie to you. I might, but you know, I'm, I'm, I swear. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember being on a bus and the kids that beat me up and so forth and so forth. And, uh, what happened was in that bus ride or at the end of that bus ride, after the, the beating had taken place, uh, the teacher came back. Remember the teacher, a uh, beautiful lady came back, only had one eye, uh, butch she was probably still is. I don't think she's dead. Um, but she came was like, why are you crying? And she basically just gave me this lecture. Like, look me dead in her one good eye. It was, it looked me, I, you know, eye to eyes. And, uh, cause she had the one eye and, uh, she's like, don't get mad, get even. It was basically what she said. And that kind of reminded me of, of what's going on in this thing, because, you know, you have this guy who's like taking his, his reality and he's, uh, as my uncle is calling me, we'll call him back. Uh, he's taking his reality and he is, uh, he's using it to his advantage. And he's like, look, I know what it's like to be beat up. I know what it's like to be bullied. I know what it's like to be hurt. So I know that it, it really doesn't bother me in the end. So let me just go ahead and, uh, just realize that I can use it to my advantage. It sucks, but you get over it, right? As I make sure everything is on D and D. So nobody disturbs us anymore. Uh, other thing, what we got here, we, we, we want to talk about, I want to talk about, uh, this thing here in the fart path, uh, not in the fart path. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, but, under the student, this is the section in chapter, I believe this is chapter three we're still in. Uh, it says, Musk was a good student, but not a superstar. Now, I'm curious about what that meant. I would love for some educator to tell me, just, just break down to me what exactly that is. Because truthfully, this was a guy 
who was a straight A student uh, by all means, as grandma must say, he got good marks. But they're, and, and they're saying he was a good one. He just wasn't a superstar. Now, what I'm thinking is they're heavily promoting academics. They're basically saying, you know, the, the, it, but then again, think about this. This is an academic driven world. Academia is at the centerpiece. He's trying to be technological when we're talking about an academic ideology. And so that's kind of where he's like, okay, he got his math, he got his science, he got his his basic reading, but he ain't got that it to be an academic. And Elon's like, I don't give a crap to be an academic. I want to be a technologist, you know. So that brings us to chapter four, The Seeker, where we get a lot of meat and potatoes in chapter four, mostly because this is the chapter that focuses on his dealing. His his facing of immortality, uh, the outer space, the outer being, uh, spirituality, religion, and so forth and so on. He begins to question his faith or the faith. Now, the, the thing that fascinated me about this is because he was a his mother was a good Anglican. And uh, so, you know, they had went through all the details, you know, raising him to, to do, you know, he went and got baptized and all this stuff. I find it fascinating because, and I don't think the church does this much anymore, but back in the early days, the church would literally like force you into doing things like taking communion or doing your prayers or or reading your Bible or attending church, or it was like they were guilting you into being this person that you really had not accepted or really didn't want to be or really didn't understand why you were doing it. And Elon was this person who went, okay, I don't understand this. He actually considered communion as some form of cannibalism. When they said they're drinking the blood and the body of Christ, like we eating people. Is that what we're doing here? What the, what the, what the hell? It's literally what he said as a kid. He's like, what the hell is this? Like, which you and I, us very highfalutin minded people wouldn't dare, wouldn't dare tell our parents, especially us black folks, we wouldn't dare tell our parents some stuff like that. But the other part to this that I feel is a very uh, key point, I think is the church's loophole, if you will, their pathway to dealing with people who who feel uh, more so in the atheist community is that Elon specifically realizes that science and physics can answer certain things. But then there's this why. Most folks are arguing over the what. You know, Noah and the big ship and everybody drowning, huh? You know, Israel crossing through the middle of the Red Sea and the water's parting on both sides and they're walking through on dry land, huh? You know, the fish just popped up and all this stuff, huh? You know, Jesus feeding the 5,000, he had the two fish and the five loaves and from there everybody was fed. All those different things is the what, but nobody is talking about why. 
and nobody's focusing on the why. Why would somebody do all this for us people? And I believe in this book, Elon explains, if they had it focused on that, then we might have had a good conversation. But they didn't. And at least according to this, that is where Elon is still struggling. Also, uh, and my final point on the way is in this chapter of, of the seeker, not only are they not focusing on why things are happening, but it shows how much we don't appreciate the power of the young ingenuity of youth, young ingenuity. Here's a kid at the end of this. They said he had a, uh, an addiction for video games. Watch this. He had, he came up with a grander idea. The cousins could create a video game arcade of their own. We knew exactly which games were the most popular. So it seemed like a sure thing. He figured out how the cash flow could finance the machines. But when the boys tried to get uh, the city permits, they were told they needed someone over 18 to sign the application. I'm just going to stop right there. It's more to that, but it's no point. Because here's a kid that had figured out a great business idea. Had submitted it to the city. And the only problem was he was just too young. Not, oh, kid, this is stupid. Oh, really? They're probably sitting there. First of all, this bastard came down here and literally tried to get a permit to build. Okay. And how old is Okay. All right. Let's go on to chapter five. Uh... At age 17, after seven years of living with his father, Elon realized Elon realized that he would have to escape. Life with him had become increasingly unnerving. Uh, Peter tells me this. He pauses for a moment and then a bit hesitant notes that Elon sometimes has similar mood swings. When Elon is in a good mood, it's like the coolest, funniest thing in the world. And when he's in a bad mood, he goes really dark and you're just walking on eggshells. So basically, Elon is, in many cases, becoming what he detests. He hates his father and or he's and I don't know if he hates him, but he just finds himself not being able to deal. And so he just needs a way out. He's like, I'm tired. I can't be here anymore. I got to go. The other thing I found fascinating was, he says, I found myself getting caught up in Errol's Tango web. In a series of calls and emails over the course of two years, he gave me varying accounts of his relationship with and feelings for his kids, May and his stepdaughter, with whom he had two children. Now, we're definitely going to have to talk about that a little bit later. Because, and it actually said more on that later. So I'm mark that as something because you, you, that's, that's one of them comments we go, girl, you know, we got to come back to that because, mm, yeah. Uh, that brings us into chapter six um, Canada. 
he uh, after a week he bought a hundred dollar Greyhound Discovery Pass that allowed him to travel by bus anywhere in Canada for six months. He had a second cousin his age who lived on a farm in Saskatchewan. Here comes the pain. I wonder, was it Brock Lesnar? No, he wasn't. Brock wasn't there yet. He was still in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, maybe he was. Yeah, I think he was born around then. Anyway. Uh, it was more than 1,700 miles from Montreal, Saskatchewan is. Uh, now, let's talk about how he got to Canada. He was trying to get to the United States. Uh, you know, we got this thing called not letting people in. And uh, so he couldn't figure out how to properly do that. So he figured he can go through Canada. And that's why he's in Canada trying to uh, deal with uh, getting himself together. Other thing that's fascinating, how his family joined in with him. But, but, but more fascinating than that was Elon was an intern in the Microsoft, in Microsoft's Toronto office. So I'm thinking... Here's a dude who's literally working for Bill Gates. Just just put that in your pipe and smoke it. He's working for Bill Gates and then grows up to basically surpass him and in some cases be better than him. Just just let that just let that that wheel out into your 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 pocket. Uh, chapter seven, Queens. There's not much here except uh, he. Uh, well, this is the fascinating part. When Kimball moved to Canada and joined Elon as a student at Queens, uh, the brothers develop a routine. They would read the newspaper and pick out the person they found most interesting, which is something that I went, huh? Not reading the newspaper, but finding people most interesting. That might be something to do. Uh, Elon was not one of those eager beaver types who liked to attract and charm mentors. So the most, uh, uh, so Kimball took the lead in call in cold calling that person. If we were unable to get through on the phone, if we were unable to get through on the phone, they usually would have lunch with us. Uh, one they picked was Peter Nicholson, the executive in charge of strategic planning at Scotts at, uh, at Scotia Bank. Nicholson was an engineer with a master's degree in physics and a Ph.D. in math. And he became uh, a mentor of sorts to. Uh, uh, Elon and it talks about as we move down it says uh, El well let me just tell you what happened so Elon basically wanted to after he became a mentor learn about how banking worked he wanted to maximize on some things that was happening in the American these things called Brady bonds it says one topic one topic must research for Nicholson was Latin America's debt Banks had made billions in loans to countries such as Brazil and Mexico that could not be repaid. And in 1989, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Nicholas Brady, packaged these debt obligations into tradable securities known as Brady bonds. 
because these bonds were backed by the U.S. government, must believe that they would all—they would always be worth fifty cents on the dollar. However, some were selling as low as twenty cents on the dollar. So Elon went to the Scotia Bank, uh, his mentor, Mr. Nicholson, and said we should do that. And Nicholson, of course, said no. And it says Elon. This is Elon. He said he came away with an impression that the bank was a lot dumber than it in fact was. But that was a good thing because it gave him a healthy disrespect for the financial industry and the audacity to eventually start what became PayPal. That's where you get PayPal from. Uh, Musk also drew another lesson from his time at Scotiabank. He did not like, nor was he good at working for other people. It was not in his nature to be dif differential or to assume that others might know more than he did. And that takes us to chapter eight, where he gets to Philadelphia. So he goes on to pen, uh, which it straight off starts with the reality that most of us realize money is a problem. The boy ain't got no money. Student debt, student loans, the, the struggle to pay and fund your college education is so uh, here, even in this time of, uh, 1992, it's, 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 it's abysmal. And he's struggling with that. Uh, but this is also where he became fascinated. It said Musk also became convinced that solar power, which in 1994 was just taking off, was the best path towards sustainable energy. The importance of being solar. He was more motivated by not just by the dangers of climate change. He's a climate change person. Think about this but also by the fact that fossil fuels reserves would start to dwindle. Society will soon have no option but to focus on renewable power sources. So here this kid is in 1992 thinking, huh, the world is going to do this whole solar power thing Climate change is going to be a problem. Let's get on it now. Which brings us to chapter number nine. Silicon Valley. It says at Ivy League schools in the 90s, ambitious students were tugged either east towards the guild realms of Wall Street banking or west towards the tech utopianism and entrepreneurial zeal of Silicon Valley. He didn't want to go there. Watch this. Why? He felt that bankers and lawyers did not contribute much to society. This is, this is the reason why he, he like they don't do anything. I don't want to be a part of those people. The second reality that fascinated me is how in the 90s, again, in this area where I am, I came out of school in the 2000s. But in the 90s, 
you have these Ivy League people who are understanding that there's two things in the world that matters, either Wall Street and K Street or Silicon Valley. But yet down here in Virginia, where I'm sitting, all we're thinking about is how to make sure people get, well, now that I processed it, they were looking at what would get you an opportunity right here in this area, right? And in this area, you either got a job working for the government, doing trash collection or maybe something in City Hall, or you went to the base to get you a job working in, in the shipyards, you went to the military, you did something in the medical field, or you did something in the legal field. That was all that was required. That was all that was involved. Didn't think about that till now. But we didn't talk about anything other than that. And and I used to, I only brought that up, you asking why. Because I used to think, oh, this town was so backwards. And all of a sudden, no, it wasn't backwards. It just was focusing on what made sense in this area. And that's a whole other conversation for a whole other day. We talk about how uh, communities structure and, and, and prepare students for whatever they're going to do and this ratio and all the good stuff they think about it. It's very ingenious, but at the same time, it's also stupid. But that's a whole other conversation. Uh, here's the other thing that Mr. Elon talked about. Not only did he believe that bankers and lawyers didn't contribute, but he said most PhDs are irrelevant. The number that actually moved the needle is almost nuts. He's just basically taking a poo-poo all over the education system here. And uh, it's it's kind of like the Gary V, if you please, of the 90s, where, you know, Gary V is basically showing you his report card and showing you how crazy it was and how he really didn't do anything with his life. And now he's telling everybody basically fuck the system and all this good stuff. This is basically what Elon is doing. And it's 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 fascinating. Then we get to chapter 10 and we're talking about uh, his first company uh, where now. If he first he's taking a piss on the education system, now he's taking a piss on VCs. He says the venture capitalists soon did what they often do: bring in adult supervision to take over from the young founders. It happened to Steve Jobs at Apple, and to Larry Page and Seagree Bren at Google. Then he says, "I never wanted to be a CEO, but." I learned that you could not truly be the chief technology or product brand officer unless you were the CEO. So basically, he's like, look, I got to take care of my company because if I don't, then nobody's going to love it more than I am, is what he's basically saying. He also goes into Now, this is where we learn that Elon is basically an asshole. He, he explains it in this chapter that he's an asshole, how he treats people, because, again, taking those tips that he learned from his father, his very psychological abusive father, he brings it out in this in, in how he approached people that he's a fucking asshole. Right. So now that we got that out of the way. Uh, let me see. Uh, some final thing he says here. Elon led a rebellion that scuttled the merger. They was trying to merge his companies. 
And he also demanded to be made CEO again. Instead, the board removed him as chair and dismissed his role. So this is zip to his first company, which he's dismissed from. Uh, he learns that great things will never happen with VCs or professional managers. They don't have the creativity or the insight. This is my, someone said, this is your first company. Let's find and inquire and make some money. Let's find an inquirer and make some money so you can do your second, third, or fourth company. Now, most of us think about this reality of a company or job, and we say, hey, let's go out, let's get this job, you know, let's, you know, settle down, maybe do some advancement. You know, stay here 25, 30, then get yourself a gold watch, a kick in the butt, and you go home, sit by the mailbox. That's not how Silicon works. In 30 years, these boys can probably dump four, five, six companies. Dumped them. I'm not talking about worked in them. Dumped them. And, uh, and that's when he's focused. So he's got kicked out of his first job here. Then Justine. Now, here's the part that I wanted to focus on. Nobody in this chapter or in this, this point in his life wanted this to happen. Everybody thought this marriage sucked. Everybody thought this relationship sucked. And yet Elon decided he was going to do it. It says, uh, uh, when he told me he was going to marry her, this is Brother Kimball, I did an intervention. I was like, don't. You must not. This is the wrong person for you. Naive Farouk, who was his only friend, uh, said when he first met Justine, tried to stop them as well. But but watch this. But Musk loved both Justine and the turmoil. They basically fought all the time. Now, remember I told you to go back to that first half where we read with his with his parents. In chapter, uh, I believe it was in chapter, uh, what is this? Chapter one, is this where we were talking about? Maybe, I don't I don't remember the details here. Uh, I, I can't get the page right here. But I, I see what we're talking about. It's on page 13 if you're reading the, phys if you're reading the physical book. Chapter one, yes. Uh, where it says, Elon and May Holderman began dating when they were young teenagers. From the start, their relationship was filled with drama. So mom and dad, drama. Son now wants to be in a relationship that's filled with drama. So everybody is telling, oh, this is the wrong girl for you, this and the third. But the truth of the matter is he picked a girl that fit the profile of his parents. And he operates, as he said, after he got married, which is fascinating to me because I don't understand why the girl would even accept him not only marry him she's called he's calling her stupid they're not even at the altar making him sign a prenup all this other good stuff and then he gets here and he says uh they smiled and kissed then as they danced he whispered to her a reminder i am the alpha in this relationship why dude dude why did you marry this guy 
Justine, Justine. You remember that? We we can't talk about the Cosby Show, but in that way he goes, oh, Justine, Justine. Dun, dun. Oh, okay, never mind. So now we get to chapter twelve. X dot com. His experience at Scotia Bank had convinced him that the industry was ripe for disruption. Musk now had the choice. He described to CNN living like a multimillionaire or leaving his chips on the table to fund a new enterprise. The balance he struck was to invest 12 million in X.com, leaving about 4 million after taxes to spend on himself. He just acquired from the selling of his company, what, some 22, what was it? 22 million, I believe. He got from. From that sale, uh, I think it's at the end of it, dump his company, uh, let me see, uh, uh, I think I saw it somewhere where they talked about how much he would he would get, uh, Musk is driver's seat to Montana, uh, Queens University, it said somewhere, I thought it said somewhere where he, he had dumped it, 1999, yes, right here. Uh, no, that's not where we learn about that. We have to find it somewhere else. I know it's in here where they talk about how much he dumped the company for. Nonetheless, he's got this money. He's on his second company, right? And, uh, it's X.com. This is where we start hearing about X.com. Uh, his concept for X.com was grand. It would be a one-stop for everything uh, financial, for all financial needs, banking, digital purchase, purchases, credit cards, checking, investments, and loans. It's like a Robin Hood, if you please, or Cash App before that was a thing. X.com. Uh, there's not much in this chapter about uh, just how they set up PayPal and all this good stuff. But it says, watch this. This was very fascinating to me. It said Musk and his partner, Michael, went to New York to see if they could recruit Rudy Giuliani. Uh, not going to read the details, but in this book is where Rudy Giuliani is an asshole. We know that now. But most folks, as this chapter kicks off in 1999, this was before 9-11. It says uh, he was just ending his tenure as mayor to be a political fixer. Uh, this is right before 9-11. We knew that Rudy Giuliani is the great American statesman and he was the guy that was you know, doing such great things and, and he was just, just this, right? But he wasn't. No, Rudy Giuliani was a master or at least it's, it's sad to say, but he was a guy that was basically handed the greatest PR move of a, of a lifetime. He was handed the destruction of the, of the trade center. The World Trade Towers, the Twin Towers. And even though it was the most devastating moment in his life or in the life of the nation, 
it was a great media move for him. And so, but Elon knew long before that, oh, this guy's a bastard. And eventually the world came to see that Elon was right about that, which, you know, you learn in this book, a trend that a lot of times Elon is a great, he, he he's good at basically understanding and seeing things that just, he's a great realist. That That's, that's a good way to put it. Uh, chapter 13, this guy finally goes on vacation. Now he and his wife have been together. God knows how long, because this is, uh, the year 2000. If you go back and realize that chapter, uh, uh, 11, I believe it was. Yes. Uh, he, he's married in the nineties, somewhere in there, probably right before, uh, we'll see where chapter 12 starts. Um, shucks. Chapter 12 starts uh, on in 1999. So somewhere between 99. Uh, does it say when he got married? It doesn't say that. I don't think it. Uh, yes. January of 2000. Uh, he got married. So. Uh, PayPal stars literally right after he got married. Uh, he didn't have a honeymoon. He never went on vacation, never did anything. He decided to go in the late summer of 2000 to, uh, uh, to go have some fun, even though many people thought he was an asshole. And, uh, as the, the, the book kicks off with PayPal, now we're in the second company that nobody wants to deal with him. And so the moral of the story is the first time, uh, it was a direct shot to get rid of him. And the second time they undermined him and they voted to get rid of him and kick him out of PayPal. So now he's lost zip two and he's lost PayPal. And he says, the company was my baby. And like the mother in the book of Solomon, I was willing to give it up so that it could survive. So this guy has, first of all, he has a lot of understanding of biblical texts, even though he, in some cases, hates it. But again, it focuses on him being a realist. He understands this. The second part that I want to focus on in this is, number one, I don't get Justine. I don't get why she constantly puts herself in environments to be hated. Like, dude, these people don't want you around. Why are you here? Why are you in this relationship? I'm sure we're going to find somewhere down the road why this is happening. But for some reason, again, it's like a product of his parents. They just love to live in conflict. And it's obvious Elon doesn't care about the conflict. And uh, it's just it's just a big thing. So now Elon is on to Mars. In chapter 14, he is learning about why or what we can do. He's fascinated by the fact that he says here, uh, I figured uh, it had to be soon because we went to the moon in 1969. So we must be about to go to Mars when he couldn't find the schedule. He rummaged deeper in on the site until he realized that NASA had no plans for Mars. He was shocked. So he went to the PAL 
Alto Public Library to read about rocket engineering and started calling experts asking to borrow their old engine manuals. He was basically teaching himself how to build a rocket. And uh, it says, why? That's where we want to focus. It's useful to pause for a moment and note how wild it was for a 30-year-old entrepreneur who had been ousted from two tech startups to decide to build rockets that could go to Mars. Uh, what drove him, he says. It, this was the question that, he, or it's the answer to that question. Do we want to tell our children that going to the moon is the best we did and that we gave up? Ancient Egyptians learned how to build pyramids, but then the knowledge was lost. The same happened to Rome, which built uh, other wonders that were, that were lost in the Dark Ages. Was, this, was that happening to America? People are mistaken when they think that technology just automatically improves. It only improves if a lot of people work very hard to make it better. He said that at a TED Talk, which I was fascinated. And third, his motivation was more inspirational. It came from his heritage in a family of adventures and his decision as a teenager to move to a country that had bred into its essence the spirit of pioneers. And that's why he wanted to, he felt like he could and should do the unthinkable. Which brings us to our last point of thought for today. Chapter 15, Rocket Man. Now, when I saw this, I thought, okay, are we talking about Kim Jong-un? That's what I thought. Has nothing to do with Kim Jong-un. But it does have a lot to do with NASA and Russia. Musk was trying to buy some rockets, which were old missiles. Uh, he went to Russia to uh, to Moscow to negotiate and it seemed that they were just fucking with him, which is basically what they were doing. Uh, he got pissed, of course. Uh, but he said it was fortunate that the meetings went badly. Uh, it probed, it, it just forced Musk to think bigger. Uh, it was pretty, I was pretty mad and when I get mad, I try to reframe the, reframe the problem. So again, this is one of those guys where I look at and I go, first of all, why do you keep pissing this guy off? I don't understand it. Why? Because it's it's almost it's it's kind of like that that text over in uh, one Corinthians chapter two verse eight. Where it says the rulers of this world have no clue. Because if they did, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. Elon is one of those guys. That's one of the reasons why I I am urging people. I'm urging them to read this book. Because he is a guy you just don't want to keep pissing off. The more you piss him off, the more he retaliates in whatever way he deems fit. And I'm not saying you should be afraid of an Elon or you should, uh, well, be afraid. But at least know that if you're trying to stop this guy, uh, that's probably damn near impossible. 
And uh, that brings us to chapter, the end of chapter 15. I'm I'm going to do this like the teacher would back in the day. You know how your teacher would do this? Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm talking about, your teacher. They're going to assign you pages to read. I, I want to, let's, how about we do uh, about a good 60 pages, maybe 59. We're going to try to get through next time, chapter 16 through 25. We're going to talk about fathers and sons uh, revving up. We're going to talk about Musk's rules for rocket building. Mr. Musk goes to Washington, founders of Tesla. We're going to talk about Roadmaster, the Roadmaster. Uh, we're going to talk about Kawaja, uh, Two Strikes, the SWAT team, uh, and finally, Taking the Wheel. That's what we're going to get to. And our next time together, reading Walter Isaacson's rendition of Elon Musk. Go ahead and get it if you haven't. I didn't. I didn't spoil it too much. At least I hope I didn't. So it's it's still you know I just gave you some points and some tips that you can think about when you're reading. But it's a lot I missed in that. So go ahead and uh, if you can uh, you know take a poke around. And see it for yourself. I I, I promise. I, I almost guarantee you're going to get it. Barnes and Noble's got it. Uh, well, all your social book places got it. Audio books and everything. So you you definitely can find it somewhere. Uh huh. And uh, we're gonna get reading on this a uh, next time. I guarantee. I'm excited to join you there. <music> I'm going to get ready to get out your hair, but I realized before we do, I need to have a, uh, oh yeah, I got a, this, this guy is calling Matthew. We got to, oh, we got to catch up with him before we, we get, okay. All right. So, uh, he's on the line. Uh, we're going to get him patched in and, uh, see what he's got. Cause you know, we've, we've held you up enough today. I appreciate your time. All right. Uh, get, 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 just figure out how to get him in here. Let me just. Hit this button. What do you want? I'm reading a book. What do you want? You have like five minutes. I'm taking a break. What do you want? I have like five minutes. What do you want? Five minutes? Yes. Five minutes. Yes. That's a long time. Okay, cool. What do you want? Five minutes. In some some cases, it could be a long time. Other cases, not so much. Depends on who you ask. Okay, then let's make it three minutes, and then we can say it's not a long time. What do you want? Three minutes? Now, that's a a very short amount of time. What do you want? (laughs) What are you doing? I'm reading Elon Musk's book. You called me to talk about something. What are you doing reading? Because that's what you do when you want to be smart. Now, what are you talking about? You want to talk about something sports-related? You want to talk about something... You know, I heard you called me smart, and then you also called me a dumb bag of bricks. Which both are true in some instances. Yeah, nope. that's right. I listen to the podcast. I hear you talking trash about me. You are a dumb bag of bricks sometimes. What do you want? Just because I'm a cowboy fan doesn't make me a dumb bag of bricks. Yeah, it does make you a dumb bag of bricks. We're 2-0, bitch. 
There's nothing sports going on right now, so I don't understand why you're calling and talk about me. There's a lot of sports going on. What are you talking about? Like what? There's Monday Night Football last night. Okay. That's what Pat McAfee's talking about right now. I don't care about Monday Night Football. Nothing I had to deal with has anything to do with Monday Night Football. Did the Steelers lose? The Steelers actually won. Oh! They beat the Browns. Oh! Whoa! Here we go, Steelers! Here we... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was amazed. What are you doing chanting Steelers? Um, I mean, why not? They have nothing to do with my division. Why should I not chant them? No, but they are in the AFC. Well, that is true. Not your division, but same conference. That is true. Anyway, is there, yep. any, is there anything else on your brain that you want to talk about? Um... I don't know. You told me to call you back. Okay. He you said, call me back. He said, I won't be busy for the next hour. Huh. Well, yeah. And now you're busy. Yes. You lied to me. I do that a lot. I'm a politician. You lie a lot? Yeah. I was going to say, it makes sense. You're a politician now. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm a politician. That's the first thing you do is you lie. Liar. As, as Rihanna said, I love the way you lie. That's what you just hear politicians. You just learn to love the way they lie. Yeah. That's unfortunate, isn't it? Very unfortunate. Yes. Tell me about Aaron Rodgers Tuesday when it comes on. I want to hear all the deeds. Uh, actually, I think if I heard Pat correctly, he opened the show by saying Aaron Rodgers Tuesday is now on Friday. Well, that sucks. Yeah. Damn. We gotta wait till Friday now? Apparently. At least this week. I don't know if it's like that every week, but at least this week it is. Oh, well, then we have nothing else to talk about. Yep. That's what I called to give you an update on. Alright. Goodbye. At least that's what it sounded like you said, but I could have been wrong, but I'm pretty sure he opened the show by saying Aaron Rodgers Tuesday on Friday. Well, go figure out what they're talking about and call me back. Later. Bye.